Welcome to the Twilight Conversations. My name is Jimmy, and in this podcast, I will be exploring human relationships, human potential, and that curious space between the dark and the light. Hello, and welcome to the Twilight Conversations, episode 25, I believe. Um, so listen, apologies, some of you said, not everybody, about the sound on last last week's podcast was um, a little bit tin canny. That was completely my fault. Not the sound guy. Dean, Dean O'Scurry's been stepping in for me doing the sound until I'm learning it myself. It was, he actually made it sound better than it was. It did read and sound good at all. But uh, I thought the content was interesting. So I said, Dean, if you can do anything with it, put it out there anyway. And he did his magic on it. So um, my apologies if it wasn't up to the standard of... of uh, the previous podcasts, which usually sound okay as far as I'm aware. But anyway, not everyone has said it, just a couple of people. And I know Dean was aware of it, so it's nothing to do with his craft or artistic uh, capabilities. Um, that's spot on. Spot on for Dean. Thanks, Dean. So today, and there is a thread running through the interconnectedness between everything in life. So today's podcast, today's episode, I'm going to talk about the shadow self. You know, particularly um, with reference to Carl Gustav Jung. Carl Jung. Now, I'm not a Jungian expert. I'm not a Jungian analysis, but I'm familiar familiar with his work, as they say. Um, and he named something that's been ancient. You know, human beings have known about for a long, long time. But he named, I suppose he used the term, the shadow self. I think he was the first of his contemporaries around that time. He was a. He studied with Freud and. Otto Rank and all those guys, uh, the psychoanalysts, um, back in the day, back in whew, 18, 1900s, 1900s. Um, and he was a Swiss psychiatrist, uh, psychoanalyst. And, you know, you mean a lot of you are familiar with Freud. Maybe I'll do something on Freud one day, but Freud isn't really of great interest to me, though I really appreciate his contribution to psychology, psychotherapy for sure. But uh, as uh, Anne O'Connell always gets a mention, said, yeah, Jung was, of the psychoanalyst, Jung was really the rock and roll, wasn't he? <laughs> you know, which is kind of true because um, Jung began to look at the human being far more than the kind of very mechanical style of, of psychoanalysis, you know, very internal, very interesting, you know, id, ego, superego, I'll say something about them in a minute. These are terms Freud kind of named, Carl Jung began to, I don't know if he got dissatisfied with that, whether it was his own personal journey, whatever way he kind of moved in the world, he began to open this out and look at like collective unconscious and he became interested in cultures and uh, spirituality and transpersonal energies, you know, which was really unusual for, from that very mechanistic psychoanalytical model, you know. So you had that kind of branching off um, well, you got you had psychoanalysis, then there was kind of behaviorism, and then there was humanistic psychotherapy, which I would lean into, and then a further part of that would be transpersonal psychotherapy. And and Jung was the the first really to to be of that ilk, you know. I think to begin to name those kind of things, be willing to explore kind of spiritual or cultural themes or society themes, even slightly political themes, but more. He was certainly more interested in, in consciousness, unconsciousness, the collective unconsciousness, 
collective unconscious. It's all there, and I mean the, the the shadow self that I'm going to talk about is very much right in that area. As you may know, Jung would be famous for the his archetypes. You know, archetypes in, in straightforward sense is just a, a prototype, the original of something. But in the kind of psychology or spiritual element, the archetypes here are kind of very deeply. I don't want to even say ingrained, passed on, laid down um, patterns and signals through consciousness of cultures, generations, kind of themes that we're all familiar with, you know. Um, like he named, uh, his famous archetypes would be the sage, innocent, explorer, ruler, creator, caregiver, magician, hero, outlaw, lover, gesture regular person now you could do a podcast on the the archetypes themselves but they're all kind of themes or motifs or images that we're all pretty familiar with through our lives and have been down through uh, generations of consciousness and right across cultures as well he was interested in anthropology as well that kind of whole area study of human tribes and beings and groups um but the one we're interested in here is a jester it's like the shadow self <clears throat> and I'm thinking of Bob Dylan's Joker Man. And because the Joker Man, Dylan sang in archetypes all the time. All his characters through the years, if you notice some of the themes that he uses, they're kind of universal themes. And this, this is what the archetypes are. They're universal themes for humanity. That we, dramas that we play out. Whether that's on, you know, in world wars or uh, domestic discussions or arguments or wherever we are, whatever we're doing, uh, our daily quest in life, we're somehow playing out of these, consciously or unconsciously, different archetypes. So the jester, the joker man, and in Dylan's song, is from the album uh, album Infidels, which was one of his, he was going through his Christian period. Um, I've, and I, I'm going to say, I probably mentioned this before, that's become a going joke now, how often, how many times is Jimmy going to say, I think I mentioned this in a previous podcast, and I think I did. Even though I've particularly nothing against Christianity, but I loved his Christian albums, not necessarily for the Christian reason, though there were some interesting themes, just musically they were just fucking beautiful, um, as a lot of his work is. So it's from the album Infidels, and he had Mark Knopfler playing a lot of the guitar, which was just delightful. Uh, Sweetheart Like You, License to Kill, I think is from that album, if I'm not, am I mistaken? Hold on, hold on. That might have been Slow Train of Coming. It's off one of the, the Christian albums. Anyway, but the joke, Joker Man, uh, you, may, you might remember the song, really, really speaks of that trickster of the shadow self. To me, that song, the idea of the Joker Man or woman in us really captures the shadow self, you know, beautifully in song. Because I think we're talking about images, themes, meanings that are hard to find, you know, the words for. Uh, but we all kind of instinctively or, or intuitively understand these kind of archetypes and themes. And the joker man or woman is, to me, sits right in the, the axis, right in the core of the being. And he, she has the ability to wreak havoc on the world, cause absolute chaos, or bring incredible healing, peace, joy, uh, magic, wonder, love to the world right and the, you know we're all kind of somewhere in between <laughs> you know hopefully we're not doing too much you know uh, destructive stuff so the shadow self by its nature is not you know we think a shadow 
it's not dark, although it's in the dark. It's not dark as in morally evil. Although Jung began talked a bit about that, there is elements of that in human society. You can see that, you know, through wars, through famine, through uh, through greed, through uh, violence, through all the kind of trickery and manipulation that goes on in the world that causes great suffering to human beings. We know that's in us, individually and collectively. And there's no way of really talking about this, you know, traditional psychoanalysis would think of the individual only, where Jung's psychology, collective unconscious, all beings, the interconnectedness. So you've already got that kind of transpersonal spiritual piece. You know, and yes, <coughs> excuse me, there may be specific um, qualities to individuals because of their personality and who they are and how they express themselves. Even that being true, we're also describing something collectively as well. Well, that's in the family, in the bigger group, in the world group. That at some level, um, apart from, I believe we all come from the same place anyway, but just up a bit from that, in the shadow self, we're all swimming in the same ocean, definitely. Definitely, but expressing that differently, and some people take ownership and some people don't. So from this point of view, you know, I'm not going to get into discussions whether there's evil or immoral stuff uh, around the shadow. That If that exists, it's certainly coming from an unowned shadow. The shadow, as I'm going to talk about it, simply means it's not in the light yet. It's not brought into consciousness, it's unconscious. So therefore, it, we can wreak havoc or, you know, if, if you've no ownership of the shadow. Um, what's going on there, it's the hidden, it's often what we're ashamed of, I touched on this a little bit before, it's often where the good stuff is, but it gets mixed up with a lot of other uh, impulses and ideas and feelings that are maybe distorted or misunderstood, that maybe we were taught to repress, you know. Okay, so using the classic ego, superego and id, models of the person, the ego as we understand it, okay in itself, is who we think we are. It's the idea I have of myself, rightly or wrongly, right? Ego is who I think I am. The superego is who I think I should be. That's an area where you've got big heavy critic going on there. That's society coming in on you. You know, tut, tut, tut. Well, even that's the superego in our heads telling us. So ego is who I think I am. Superego is who I think I should be, according to the pressure from society. And the id is who I actually really am. Can be more complex than that, but let's keep it that simple for now. The id is who I am. And what is the id in that sense? Because it's a Latin word, drive. It's like it's where the other base impulses are for procreation, for sex, primal needs, primal urges for safety, for protection. You know, that's where that stuff is. Nothing wrong with it in and of itself. But again, depending on culture, family, society, how that is viewed, it's often seen as you know, something we need to repress, you know, something that we, I suppose, uh, should be ashamed of, you know, and I know, like, say, for example, our, our Catholic Ireland, you know, I know it's changing, but the whole area of sexual desire, sexual impulse was very, very much repressed, and then it became distorted and it goes right down into the shadow self, you know, and finds its way out in all kinds of weird and not so wonderful ways sometimes in very harmful ways because I will be saying a good bit about projection of the shadow 
if we don't own the shadow, it's going to find its way out somewhere. We don't own what's in the shadow. You could say the shadow or what, what the shadow conceals. Maybe would be a way of looking at it. If you don't, you're not able to do that. Well, and we all struggle to do that. We need a bit of help with that. It will find its way out. And sometimes with kind of mild consequences and uh, collectively on the world with devastating consequences. Because a lot of wars, a lot of hate crimes are projected shadows. People can't own their own deep impulses. They can't own their own difficult, dark places. You know, they can't own that type of stuff. Okay. So the shadow self is often called egotistonic. Or complexes, maybe. Repressed id. You'll hear me come back to the id quite a lot. Shadow aspect. Or the shadow archetype. That's that word, the archetype again. It's kind of an unconscious as- aspect of the self. And it doesn't always correspond with our ego ideal. That's the, remember what I said, who we think we are? Because we have this idea of who we think we are. And some of it's okay, some of it isn't, but it's incorrect. But our shadow self, our id, our real kind of impulsive, very deep self, will be in conflict with that. So you'll often get the id, the id getting pushed down by the ego and the super ego tutting and giving out that you even have these feelings in the first place <laughs> so you can see where that goes <laughs> you know the id's on top the id is like here you know that you get there's one in every job and everywhere <laughs> and they're tutting and pointing at you and they're like they're always uh holding the court for you you know and telling you how bad you are that's that's the super ego they're telling you you know i don't i'm not sure the super ego is ever that useful i mean as we go on, you'll see this is all about balance. I suppose the superego, if it's managed well, can be good for having goals and, God, I would like to behave better, I would like that. That's done with kind of measure and balance. The superego can kind of invite us to be better. At, at its best, that's what it's for. But what often happens, you know, and it depends on our experiences and trauma and uh, the society we're in and the family and the kind of the zeitgeist whatever's going on in the, out there in the ether that can be very punishing and shaming you know and really you know the very thing we need to get in touch with and feel okay about and balance with our shadow self starts to become a source of shame and repressed and hidden and of course nothing dies it will come out unconsciously through our dreams because there's a huge amount of uh, particularly with young dream work yeah that type of stuff you know i was also wondering um i suppose the the three states the ego the superego and the id none of them are bad in and of themselves they're just kind of systems to understand the, the human psyche but they're a bit ex- you know if they're distorted and excessive because I said there, the superego could be good as in terms of like, God, I'd like to work towards that. I'd like to improve that. I'd like to be better with encouragement, not shame. The ego, yeah, I have a kind of healthy sense of self. This is kind of who I am, but I'm not going to take that as gospel. You know, I'll stay flexible and open. And the id, I will accept my deep shadow self that's full of love and magic and creativity and uh all kinds of stuff and I have to go in there, you know, to, and it can feel a bit dark sometimes and a bit murky and a bit like, what's in here, you know, um, and prone to shame and God, what, what, what's that going to look like if I bring that out into the open? How is that going to sound, you know? Um, Winnie the Pooh, who might be a strange person to bring into a story on the deep dark shadow, 
he made a brilliant statement, as he often does. He was saying, um, he had a poem and he was saying, you know, he, he couldn't get it out. And he was saying, like, you know, when you have something inside of you, he said, and uh, it feels kind of okayish in there. But then it comes out and it kind of looks different out there when everybody looks at it. <laughs> That's what it can be like. It's like, ooh, and you want to reel it back in again, you know. That comes from the 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 deep resource that is the the id or the shadow self. Again, sh- only shadow because it's the light isn't shining on it, so to speak, you know. Um, there's, there's lots of talk about Jung's archetype. Sometimes they break it down into four, like the persona and persona again. It's a bit like ego. It's like the false self. It's not really who we are, but it's who we present kind of thing. The shadow and the anima animus and the self. Anima animus is that kind of Latin term. As I did previously say in a podcast, always feels you feel particularly smart if you're saying something in Latin and you not kind of know the meaning. But generally speaking, what the anima animus is, it's just a beautiful uh, description of how the male sees the female and how the female sees the male. It's our, it's my inner female. And if you're a female, it's your inner male. It's how we perceive that anima animus, kind of interesting, and the self, you know. So, as I mentioned, it's, it's a lot to do with ancestral memories or transgenerational consciousness, that kind of area. Really interesting. Winnie the Pooh, what a lovely chap he is. Well, he's not a chap, he's bear. Uh, yeah, the feminine image, just talk about that. I suppose um, it might be worth mentioning something about creativity because you've probably got this if you've listened to my podcast. There's something about like whether that's music, art, film, whatever it is, it comes from the difficult space in us, doesn't it? You know, um, I think you might agree the best work, the best movies, the best books, the best films, the best music, you can kind of sense, particularly if the person's read it themselves or whatever, it's coming from a place of there's usually suffering going on. You know, this person isn't just having a casual afternoon as they're writing this piece of work. You know, they're touching on all those themes. So there's a lot to be said for the, I suppose, the creativity connecting with the darkness in us. But I don't mean darkness as in evil, you know. I don't mean it that way at all. Um, Yeah, psychiatrist, psychotherapist, Carolyn Kaufman, she says, in spite of its function as a reservoir of human darkness, or perhaps because of it, the shadow is the seat of creativity. She said brilliantly what I'm trying to say there, you know, just backing up with a bit of, bit of stuff there, but it's true, isn't it? So what am I really saying to you here? If you want, yeah, I can. Okay, I think I have a, a sense of it now. If you want to be fully alive, whatever that may be for you, if you want to really experience who you are, taste the joys and the magic and the risk and the fear of this world. If you want to really be in it and participate and, you know, I've been talking about death and uh, get to a space where you know maybe your time is up and you can kind of go, you know, I dance the dance, I walk the walk, I skip the light mandango and all that stuff. There's no way around that other than going through the shadow. You've got to negotiate the shadow in yourself. There's no way around that. And it's not a bad thing at all. You know, the trickster or the joker can make you think it's bad. It's not at all. 
you know, if you can approach it with a bit of balance, you know, and what are you really going to find out about yourself? What's the worst thing you think you've done? What, you know, and often, and this is certainly the case with me, it's my desires, my deep need to connect and reach out is deepest in my shadow. That's where a lot of my shame can be. It doesn't make sense to be ashamed to want to be a loving human being, but, you know, psychological structures, society, families, cultures have somehow woven that into our way of being. You know, we're supposed to pretend that we don't have any needs and da 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 da, da and all kinds of whack, wacky shit, you know. Um, yeah, fascinating. So that's deep in the shadow. So what I'm saying is for human beings, if that's not acknowledged, if if you're not comfortable to explore that and make friends with that part of yourself and accept it, encourage it and bring it out for yourself in a balanced way, you're going to suffer more. You're really, really going to suffer, you know? And even when we do, this, I suppose Jung called it shadow work, and that's the work we talk about, integration or assimilation. Old styles would be like, Let's cut that part out of ourselves, pretend it's not there, push it down, keep those needs at bay, and just try to be a good person. I mean, that's admirable, but fucking crazy, right? No, we need to go a different route. Well, I, you don't have to. You can reject all of this, of course. We need to walk into that darker place in the forest, if we want to use that metaphor. You know, we, it's, there's no light there, but you maybe need to bring a light or trust that something's going to come, you know? So you can see the metaphor I'm using there. We're called into that place. Some people call it the dark night of the soul from a, a Christian perspective, which we all have. The dark night, that night may be months or days, and it may return again. It can be part of what's called a spiritual awakening for some people. You know, we have to go through the dark to get to the light. You know, that's ancient, isn't it? We all know that. And the beauty is, when we open that kind of trap door into the dark dungeon of our psyche, where those kind of, where Igor is living, chained. <laughs> oh, that reminds me, I must talk to you about a program in a minute. When I said chained. You know, I think we've all got an Igor living down in the basement. And he, she is grossly misunderstood, but represents all the things that I think are the worst things about me. And of course, they're not at all. You know, when you go down there and you bring in the light and you unchain Igor and you actually have a proper look at him, a bit rough around the edges, but you look into his or her eyes and you're kind of going, Jesus, they're actually quite lovely. They're beautiful, really. You know, and that can take a little while because you're scared of them, you know. We're scared of ourselves, you know, but we project it out there. The boogeyman. Jekyll and Hyde. There's your classic addiction, Jekyll and Hyde. One's the kind of, whoo, you've got to avoid. He, she, that's the bad part to me. I need to disown that or cut that off. And of course, it will never disown or cut off. And two really important things happen there. One is it doesn't go away and it gets more distorted, more in the dark and unconscious. Things that are unconscious, that are oppressed, have huge control and energy over us. So they'll find their way out through the dreams, through our behaviors, through poor choices you know, and it goes on and on. Um, this huge menu of dreams and visions are really important here. Um, 
there's kind of many layers to the shadow. You know, I think uh, Jung used the term meaningful flow. You've got the personal and the collective, you know. The use of imagination and dreaming is really important here, particularly for therapy, using uh, as a way of working with people, meditation, you know. Um, and you can stand in in our own light, is that great saying? I, I haven't named this episode yet, I might call this, are you standing in your own light? Maybe. Anyway, and you know, falling into the old traps that we usually fall into. I'm, I'm, again, I'm, I'm no expert on Jung, but he's, his, he's intriguing. And he made a couple of brilliant, well, many, many great statements. But one of them was, how can I be, a, how can I be substantial if I do not cast a shadow? I love that. So in that statement, he's, they say, don't resist this. Shadow is not bad. Not owning shadow is bad if you want to put bad on it. You know, it's all about the ownership, the willingness to explore ourselves, the uh, resisting, pushing, you know, projecting onto other people. That's because they did this or she's that, you know. This is where racism comes from, homophobia, um, anti-Semitic behavior, uh, misogyny, hatred comes from an unexplored shadow you know that's bubbling with great stuff but in there you have to kind of negotiate it a bit and say you're a little bit excessive but you're i hear you let's calm you down you know you have to go in there and negotiate that so uh yeah how can i be substantial if i do not cast a shadow um it's as simple as that if, if you exist if you have substance there'll be shadow um Oh yeah, there is no coming to consciousness without pain. People will do anything, no matter how absurd, in order to avoid feeling their own soul. One does not become enlightened by imagining figures of light, but by making the darkness conscious. Carl Jung. How insightful was this dude, huh? Do you know what I'm saying? I'm, I'm, I know I did this before, I'm going to read that again. There is no coming into consciousness without pain. I think we all agree with that to some level. People will do anything, no matter how absurd I've been one of those people, in order to avoid feeling their own soul. One does not become enlightened by imagining figures of light, but by making the darkness conscious. Now, that's not to say you can't pray to or bring in the light, but if you really want to feel and see that light, you have to negotiate that darkness. That's what I think Carl is saying there. Uh, and by virtue of doing that, you will come into the light anyway. Class, classic archetype is the crucifix. You know, that, that suffering, Jesus suffering. There are many others. The dark night of the soul. The awful, that moment. I only try and imagine what it must have been like when he's on that cross. And they're giving, the, 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 the Roman soldiers are slagging him and taking the piss out of him. And they're playing cards down the bottom, aren't they, with his robes and... They won't give him a drink. It's just always, it's dark. It's thunder and lightning up there in Calvary, you know. And eventually they all fuck off, you know. I think Mary Magdalene's hanging around, maybe his mom, they're grief stricken and he's in agony there, if you can imagine. But that awful moment where he says, my God, why have you forsaken me? That terrible, terrible moment where briefly like, hang on a minute, maybe there's no one, maybe there's nothing, you know. That's part of that must have been part of Christ's shadow, wasn't it? Because being who he was, I'm, I'm the son of God. He couldn't have a doubt. 
you know. And he did, he had lots of doubts and he walked in the desert and he doubted in the garden of Gethsemane, he doubted. You know, again, I'm, I'm, I'm not promoting Christianity, I'm just thinking as an archetypal figure, Christ is powerful to learn from and the stories around him. You know, that, that whole crucifixion vibe, think about it. We've all had our version of that. Okay, maybe not as extreme. I'm not saying we suffered the same as Christ, but there is meant to be a connection between his suffering and our suffering, isn't there? So they've got collective, there's the collective shadow of consciousness there. Because I think some of my most painful moments was when I felt forsaken. You know, everyone had abandoned. You know, it doesn't matter whether they had or they hadn't. Sometimes they haven't, but it feels that way. And even the God you reach out to seems to abandon you, you know, in that moment. That's exquisite agony, isn't it? That's right in the epicenter of the shadow. And and Christ had to negotiate that as he trans, you know, as, as he transformed then into something else and was able to meet that place and then meet the real deeper connection to, you know, I'll put it this way, they didn't say this in the Bible around, everything's going to be okay, where at some point you knew, oh, whew. and of course it was, is, you know, in that sense. Yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating, as I'm talking about it, there's so many dimensions to this and so many avenues I could go down, but uh, I'm just trying to keep it relatively simple for the moment. I'm wondering, as, as, as people are listening, what their thoughts and feelings are about their own shadow. Is it something you would see, agree with, understand, recognize? Would you call it something different? I'm just, you know, I'm often curious about that. Um, what Does it appall people? Does it like, God, that's a lot of crap? Or, you know, and again, I'm not saying Jung had everything right, but he certainly, Carl Jung, would have been very insightful, in my opinion. Very, he opened something right out for psychotherapy. He was engaged with the original AA members and they helped each other at that particular stage as well. He was really impressed by what they were doing because of the spiritual dimension to that and that he could see the whole nature of the AA or NA program as it became as well. Was it very much by uh, confronting the shadow? Think about it, you know. People are doing these awful things and bam, bam, bam and feeling really, really bad and, you know, and they keep repressing the shadow by the drink and the drugs, <laughs> but the shadow gets worse and out of control, you know. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, this wasn't me, it was the drink. <laughs> I didn't do it, it wasn't there, you know. And it, it can almost feel that way. And, and you know, wreaking havoc and families and, you know, which is why the AA program, from a psychological perspective, for the psyche is absolutely brilliant you know if you actually look at what it's asking people to do there's no blame on anyone in there it's real taking ownership that program is really own your shadow and of course as often happens with a lot of people in addiction when they come into recovery they realize their shadow wasn't bad at all they thought they were bad they thought there was something wrong with them they thought you know something something doesn't fit something's not right here about me it can't fit in and all the all the lovely stuff is in there as well, you know. Once the the dust settles or the air clears, and you can kind of see clearly, and the the dark night, the soul is over. Now, in recovery, you can have a few more dark nights, of course, uh, without the aid of chemicals. But you ride it out. You breathe through it. You know, you know it's okay. It's part of being human, you know. 
and you're not hiding from the shadow anymore. You know, I suppose I would suggest you befriend your shadow. You know, as Bowie says, loving the alien. There's a man who knew about shadow selves now with all his, think of the personas Bowie had. You know, Ziggy Stardust, Aladdin Saint, to name two. Uh, you know, the White Duke. So many personas he had. So there's, he's played around with that all his life. Um, personas and shadows. And a lot of his, if you listen to his music, as I do very, uh, almost addictively, um, you'll hear those themes through his music, you know, and through his lyrics. Even Starman. Wow, think about that now. I'm saying that because I know it's a song everybody will know, you know, and it's kind of almost obsession with the alien piece. You know, of course, that's his own part of the self, feeling alien, feeling I don't belong, I'm on, I don't belong on this planet and so forth. And how he, genius creativity negotiated that through music, you know. Anyway, um, probably I'm a bit biased on Bowie, but I think there's some truth in what I'm saying. Oh, yeah, the chains. Rania, I meant to come back to this. There is a program. And again, there's Ann O'Connell alerted me to this on Disney Plus called The Patient. It is absolutely extraordinary. It, one episode of this will do such a better job than what I'm trying to describe to you. There's three out at the moment. There's another one due out. So it's played by the psychiatrist, psychotherapist, is Steve Carell, who plays it fucking brilliantly. He's a typical kind of Jewish psychiatrist. And the patient is, no, I always get this, I don't, I'm not sure if I can pronounce his name right, Brennan Gleason's son, Dominale Gleason. What an actor he is also. Incredible. I've seen him in other things. He's absolutely brilliant. But the two of them, I won't give it away, but like, please watch it. It's, even if you're not a therapist, you're not interested in that stuff. It's out of this world. And it really explores the shadow self, both from the therapist's perspective and the patient or client's perspective as well, very much so, you know. Um, and, and Jung, again, referred to any therapist worth their weight in gold. I don't know if he said it this way, I'm saying it this way. He, she must, we must look at our shadow. We're going to go right in there with people. So the collective shadow is going to be, boom, there in the room. What we call transference, counter-transference. It's right there up for grabs. And if a therapist isn't comfortable with his or her darker places, darker impulses, places that maybe they know about, but some they're not too sure about you. If, if, if you can't live in the unknown and be okay in that, you're going to project that all over your client. You're going to kind of stop them from getting into things that they need to talk about because you're uncomfortable with it, you know? So you, you, can, you can see how that could go. I'm going to talk a little bit about the phenomenon. Phenomenon. Dee-dee-dee-dee-dee. You have to go with that, don't you? <laughs> Phenomena. Um, where'd the Muppets just fucking brilliant? Weren't they just unreal? Anyway, I have such a great love for the Muppets. And its predecessor was uh, Sesame Street, which started, I used to watch in the 60s, the late 60s. Uh, Kermit was there. Grover. The Grouch who lived in the kind of dustbin. Anyway, it was a spin-off from that. But uh, the phenomenon of projection, we all know what it means. It means to push out, to, uh, dis in this context, to disown. And 
we can't look at shadow without looking at projection. So I've talked about it individually a little bit, how we might, let's just look at a classic one. So someone's homophobic for whatever reason. Family culture has taught them there's something wrong with same-sex relationships. Um, there's actually no truth in that. There's no, but that's just an attitude, a belief. It's not real. It's not based on reality, you know. Um, because people do love each other from the same sex, and it's fine. There's nothing wrong with it. Um, but as I'm saying, I'm just going to use that as quite classic. And I'm, I'm trying to even have compassion for the person that is homophobic because he or she maybe doesn't know why they're that way, right? What will happen to them is if we believe in, you know, the, the anima and the must, that there's male, female, and it's all, that uh, I would have, I'm, I'm heterosexual, but I would certainly, I'm not afraid of affection with males, put it that way, at all. I don't particularly want to have a sexual relationship with one, but it doesn't appall me. You know, I'm okay with it. I'm comfortable with that part of myself. Um, sometimes I love the company of males, you know. Um, I think I like the company of females more. Not all the time. Kind of. It can go 50-50. But I do. I love I love women. Love, love. You know, from my mother to a kid in the street. Just the, that energy. And I enjoy male energy also. But let's get back to our homophobic person. The more out of consciousness that is and their understanding of why they are the way they are, the more, so what they're projecting is their own discomfort or inability to be with feelings they may have about sex and same-sex love, particularly. I'm not saying they're gay, not at all, though that can be the case sometimes with very strong projection. You always have to suspect that if people are going to go to the trouble of marching out the street and trying to be violent towards uh, people who just want to love each other you got to say there's something going on there haven't you you know if someone just doesn't have the tolerance to kind of even if you disagree with it for whatever reason say you've got some kind of i think it's a distorted spiritual christian vibe or muslim vibe or whatever you have the gays are wrong okay if you, if you, you know own that but can you just be tolerant because they're not they're not going to harm you you know i often think it's funny <laughs> particularly men, I'm sure women do this, you know, if they find, if there's a kind of a homophobic guy in the company, though I tend not to be around very many homophobic guys, but if there is, they will always assume, this is how arrogant and fucking narcissistic they are, they will always assume the gay guy's going to fancy them. Better fucking not come near me. I don't think you have any worry about that, my friend. <laughs> you may well be attractive to women, I don't know how, but see that energy you have around you. I don't think you have any trouble whatsoever, you know. So that assumption that the the uh, gay person in the company is going to find you attractive. Don't bend over in front of them. You know, guys do all that kind of crazy stuff. And I know some of it's just a little bit of banter that you learn as a kid. I used to hear all that stuff, you know, that somehow this was something sinister and if, if you bent over, they were going to be like, up you like a leak. You know, that's that's what some of the shit. Thank God, there's there's more real education coming. That's what you're taught. You know, you were taught that. Then you know they're kind of sneaky and they'll get you. Um, and then you got that totally bizarre and seriously damaging, total misconnection that somehow if you were gay, uh, if a person was gay, they were then a pervert. <sighs> Absolutely crazy and so damaging. My God. Anyway, projection, right? If I don't own my own impulses, and being a human being, 
are made up of male and female. Generally speaking, we go one way or the other, but there can be some grey areas. It doesn't mean you have to do anything about it. Being comfortable in the grey area, being comfortable with the bay that kind of goes, I'm looking at that guy and I can see why women would like him. It wouldn't be my cup of tea to do that, but good luck to him and that's lovely, right? <laughs> you know, oh, isn't that, I can see why it's cool that they like each other. You know, um, getting comfortable with that doesn't mean you have to, you know, people people think to own your shadow, you think, well, that, you're, you're saying I'm gay as well. Not at all. Just get comfortable with the fact that you wouldn't mind to hug off a bloke sometimes and it doesn't have to be a big sexual thing, you know. But people are so frightened in their homophobia of that part of themselves that it would lead you to believe that maybe they are gay because it's so strong. I think the stronger the reaction, the more likelihood there may be something there. All you need to do is explore that, get comfortable with it. And, and, and if you're still someone that feels, well, I just feel it's kind of wrong, well, okay, we'll just be a bit tolerant. It's all right. Nothing has to happen. We can all breathe and live and let live, you know what I mean? Um, but I would suspect if you really, really explored it, there's, there's a whole treasure trove of information for you in there, you know, about yourself. That's not bad at all. You know, and again, we can all have distorted perceptions and experiences of things um, for sure. So that's individually. You can see collectively how that happens. Get them out. Lock them up. Where groups gather together and you get like, excuse me, that group collective projection of the shadow self. And you'll often find that what happens in group violence, um, particularly, you know, some of that. It's not only MAGA stuff, but that MAGA make America great again when the, the kind of lulas get together on that one. They're never out to improve the quality of life. They want to hurt people. You know, so they disown, they're disowning something. I wonder what the shadow is there. What's Trump's shadow? What's that, you know? Again, as I did a podcast on this, I would suspect that deep down the man is so vulnerable. But like, he's a million miles away from that. And they won't let him be with that. Uh, so he has to keep projecting lies all the time and this kind of false strong man syndrome, which he's not at all. You know, everyone can see through it type of thing, you know? So just look around the world, look at how people behave, look at the collective stuff that goes on, the disowning, particularly in re harsh regimes, like the harsh communist regimes, like in China, North Korea, you know, look at what's happening in um, Iran, the, the kind of the fight back, which is beautiful, the women kind of going, hang on a minute, fuck off, you know, because the courage there is levels are ridiculous. From regimes that, you know, what is it, what's that misogyny with men? What is, why are we so threatened by women um, thinking for themselves? What is that with us, being independent? Like, why do we want to nail them to the floor, like stay in the kitchen, you know? I can remember my first encounter as a teenager with a woman who appeared to like sex and being taken initiative. And I can't tell you the concophony of different feelings that moved through me, some delight, some absolute this is fantastic but a lot of fear because I was taught that women don't not only do they not like sex they certainly don't initiate it you know if they were if it was going to happen they were doing me a favour for some reason it was kind of something you did <laughs> you know this beautiful sensual joyful loving experience of human bodies and connections it, you know became reduced to that thankfully as the years went on you know through some great teachers all mainly women taught me more about that and what, what you know it's just it's just love and it's joy and this huge distorted vibe we have about um 
men, not all men, you know, but it's, it's in the collective consciousness of men that we get a bit uneasy when a woman gets a bit outspoken, you know? I mean, it, it, I can still get the trigger, but I, I, I don't mind it, it's fine. I just know it's an old conditioning piece. I don't live out of that place. Or if a woman's freeing herself, or a woman talks openly about her sexuality and how she feels, you know, like it's the old story, men talk about it and they're heroes, women talk about it and they're sluts. There's a huge uh, splitting off in the psyche, in the collective psyche, you know. There's your shadow again, right there, you know. And the shadow in the male there is we're deeply insecure and we need to evolve and grow to meet where women are at rather than the other way around. You know, I know that can vary in different societies, men's shadow is coming to terms with their deep insecurity you know that's why you'll get you know dominant behavior and you know even extreme awful awful you know violence and rape at some at the most extreme levels because men are not able to manage their feelings and be in the shadow and be okay and be strong you know, there's a lot more to the, the, the you know sexual violence than that but that's a huge part of it huge part of it so projection boom, I'm throwing out power and strength on you over you because I feel I don't have any deep down but I'm pretending I have so it's, it's, it's all fucking messed up isn't it you know um, so whatever it is whether you know racism, racism the same I've never understood that but no I'm, I'm telling you guys of course I understand it but it's always brought up something really uncomfortable even as a kid, as we spent time in England, and there were a lot of Asians at that time in the 60s. And I had friends Asians. I didn't know what Asian even meant, you know. I just knew there was a lovely smell coming from their house, of course, you know. It was peculiar, what's that? You know, and I was fascinated by that red dot and the clothes that the women wore, I thought were beautiful. And they had those lovely long plaits and long hair. It was amazing looking. That's the way I saw it as a child. And then I was kind of very confused then when I saw people saying, Packy and da, 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 da. you know, as as I'm sure a lot of people have this experience, you know, or or as I said to gays and and to travellers, you probably some of you may have heard the podcast with Thomas McCann. If you haven't, it's really worth a listen for because Thomas is such an eloquent speaker on on the subject and the pain that is experienced by men, women, and children when people can't explore and own their own shadow, you know. How we project that onto the traveling community. Hatred, uh, fear. You'll always get the fear mongering, you know. So it's a, and, and even a class, even though there's no obvious color difference as such, there's no distinction, but working class people feel this strongly. I felt it looked down on, shamed, where society projects that onto you. And then where it gets really messed up, then we'll put that onto travellers or someone else, you know, or other colours coming in here taking our women, you know. You hadn't got a woman anyway, you fucking need yourself. <laughs> Do you ever notice the person that's saying that's most least, least likely to have a woman in a job? Coming in here taking our jobs and women. When were you last in a relationship? When did you last have a job, you prick? Oh, <laughs> uh, God. Anyway, so I'm hoping uh, that has, has helped somewhat explain the shadow self from, from Jung's perspective and then from Jimmy George's perspective and also uh, the, the mechanisms of it and the projection, how that works. 
and of course solution for want of a term is that we own our shadow and recognize that it's not bad and you know the old saying throw the baby out with the bath water if you try to cut off all your deepest darkest impulses you're going to throw out all the good stuff because that's where the magic comes from that's where the creativity comes from that's where that aha moment the insight the intuition as a therapist all comes from being willing to sit in that space and breathe through it you know just because i have an impulse doesn't mean I have to do anything about it. it doesn't mean anything you know i'm going to push that granny in front of a bus you know that one <laughs> that's in the shadow self isn't it you know because we never do it you know so i'm hoping that explains that that the shadow is a rich wonderful personal and collective energy you're not on your own and Jung talked about the archetypes we all have them we all play them out in various ways and forms um and the joker or the trickster can have us kind of thinking it's bad it's good it's bad it leads us up this way it leads us that way that's why it's a bit tricky you know you just have to kind of negotiate listen be with breathe through you know so again music is powerful for that because it can really negotiate that well you know um and of course we've got to make choices absolutely to to not act us out of something but don't pretend you haven't got it <laughs> you know what i mean because if you know you have something and you think if i act on that that's going to hurt somebody consciously there's a very good chance i'm not going to act on it if it's unconscious i might do it uh, hopefully without too much harm to anyone but that can happen you know we notice so the shadow is a very beautiful rich reservoir kaufman used that term of creativity magic impulses fear you know all kinds of stuff in there you know but it's about balance it's not bad in and of itself it's often just misunderstood musically there's huge amounts here i'm just going to kind of move into the last 10 15 minutes or so there's been countless throughout time pieces of art and creativity around uh, the shadow self what i'm describing here and the expression of it or the balancing of it there's a whole range of artists there's millions more but i've got a couple here i'm thinking of and billy joel is he say joel or joel who i loved in the 70s never got to dislike but his best work was in the 70s he did an album an album called the stranger about 1977 78 i think it was Fucking fantastic album. Brilliant, brilliant album. Um, Just the way you are was from there. But there's a song called The Stranger on the album and it's all about the shadow self. If you know it, you'll know what I'm talking about. If you don't know it, check out Billy Joel, The Stranger. Really describes wonderfully what I'm talking about, you know. Um, Can't say anything without talking about Pink Floyd. All of their work is really about the shadow and, and, and looking at the underbelly and what are we hiding and what are we not looking at and so forth. Even the title of one of the most famous albums, Dark Side of the Moon, you know. At the end of that album, actually, now Pink Floyd fans will know this, but at the end of, you know, because a lot of Pink Floyd songs run into each other, there's no track one, two, three or four. It's kind of a very non-sequitur type of creativity. But the album kind of finishes... Um, See you on the dark side of the moon. Yeah. I think it's Brain Damage is the name of the song. Eclipse. Da, 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 da. And then it kind of stops. And there's a gap. And if you have it turned up really loud, this Scottish voice comes in and says, 
that there's no dark side of the moon. As a matter of fact, it's all dark. <laughs> it's just a funny little bit, you know, uh, may, maybe mean nothing. On uh, a Pink Floyd album I've mentioned quite a lot lately, The Wall, there's a song called, let me think of it now for a minute. One of my torrents. I can feel one of my turns coming. Yeah, yeah. It's where in the and it's in the film you can hear on the record as well where the, the group he gets in again. As I've explained, he's out of it and all kinds of chemicals. He's in almost psychotic, incredible amounts of pain, trying to manage his shadow. Right, and he's quite a passive type of character, passive aggressive type of character. And she gets in and she comes in and goes, "Wow, what a fabulous room." Or all these your guitars, you know, want to take a shower, you know, groupy type stuff, like I know, but you know, that type of thing. And he's there, he kind of can't really relate to her, and she's chatting away to him, she's just a normal young woman, and then he freaks out, not on her, but she wasn't pleasant for her. The whole mood changes, and he starts breaking the fucking room up, screaming, you know, Uh Goes absolutely mad, smashes the telly up. She just kind of runs away and sits in the corner and hides. Goes fucking mad. There's his shadow coming out. There's his rage, you know, that's been repressed for ages. You know, quiet desperation is the English way. It's the line of his line from in, in Dark Side of the Moon. It's that quiet desperation and explosive rage. Now, thankfully, he doesn't hurt the woman in it, but she was really affected by it. I mean, he wrecks the room, screaming. Would not have been pleasant to be around it. So there's your rage shadow coming out, you know. Um, which again is often at the end of extreme violence that someone hasn't taken ownership of their strong feelings of anger, for example. And, you know, manage them, don't let them build up kind of thing. If somewhere there's an attitude, it's not okay to be too object, it's not okay to say no, it's not okay, then that builds and builds and builds, you know, in that sense. I've already mentioned Bob Dylan's Joker Man. Um, another one of my favourites, Warren Zevon, Werewolves of London. You know, and that's, that's your Jekyll Hyde, the, were, the idea that these werewolves, you know, um, are, are kind of, they're, they're the baddies, you know. Uh, you know, you, what was he says, you hear them howling around your kitchen door, you better not let them in. Little old lady got mutilated late last night, werewolves of London again, that somehow they're out there, you know. They're coming. <laughs> the wolves keep the wolves from the door, you know. They're inside of us, but they're out there, you know. Werewolves of London, Burns Eve on great, great song, you know. This idea of disowning that part of the self, this the monsters. That's how the uh, the extreme, I suppose, the fascist kind of thinking, always try and make you frightened of the boogeyman's around the corner. They're coming in caravans. They're coming to get you. That's the huge projection of the shadow. It's all out there. You know, and you know, I'm not saying there isn't stuff out there, of course there is. But really if there was ownership, it's inside of us. We can we can calm that, you know. We can absolutely calm that, you know. Um even gentle songs. Simon and Garfunkel, most peculiar man. Not one of their but most known songs, but this quiet man lived on his own. He ends up taking his own life quietly. You know, he was a most peculiar man. There's a peculiar man in us all, a woman, isn't there, you know? Just quietly going about his business. No one, no one knows him. No one pays any attention to him. Everybody was surprised. You know, all the people said, "What a shame that he's dead." But wasn't he the most peculiar man? It's kind of an, the archetype of the peculiar man or woman. You know, 
and I'm thinking of the Beatles' Fool on the Hill. That's, that's in us, isn't it? See the world spin around, day after day, alone on the hill. There's a, a fool on the hill in us all. And look, there's millions, millions more songs. I'm sure you're all thinking of different songs or uh, films that show us the shadow self. Usually, you know, people wearing masks, literally, metaphorically, you know. It's everywhere. So to, to close, I began talking about the shadow self, using kind of Carl Jung because it was his creation, I suppose. He named that first, but it's always been there. And he bought it into psychology and he bought it into the psychology of the, the psyche and the self and gave us much more understanding. And he really opened out the whole idea of uh, cultures sharing the same. You have individual and cultural and collective consciousness. And it's kind of comforting because we're all kind of similar in that respect. You know, we all carry these archetypes and ways of being, you know, but individually, as we're adults, we have a job in kind of minding that and managing that. And that's really what I'm talking to you about. Because we can't really do a lot about everything out there. But I feel if I tear, take care of the inside of me, if I look after me, that's going to help me outside. The outside will, you know, align better and, and hopefully I'll meet people that will align with that. But I can't really do anything about your shadow or, you know, I'd like you to encourage encourage you to be more creative and, and don't be afraid. Please don't be afraid. There's, there's nothing you're going to find that some other human being hasn't felt or done or said and you, we can support each other. It's okay. And, you know, as I said, I think if I took a risk at the depth of my shadow is I'm afraid that I'm a really good person. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually okay and I don't mean good morally I don't always behave well you know that there's a goodness in me this, and I suspect that in everybody like I read out the Marion Williamson piece we're often afraid of the good bit so in a bizarre way you know underneath the shadow it's not like oh I'm going to find out I'm a serial killer I really don't think I'm one of them I'm going to find out that I'm actually alright <laughs> I'm quite lovable people seem to like me <laughs> and that's true and there's something lovely about embracing that part of the shadow because there are many layers to the shadow, you know, and trick, tricky bits to it. But it's about keeping a balance, keeping open, keeping flexible. It's okay, you know. Um, so I can, I suppose, integrate is the big thing, you know, with the ego, with the superego and the id. They can be aligned with each other. You know, who I really am, the impulses and the id, who I think I am, the ego, that can be balanced in that. And who I'd like to be, the superego in its mildest form, without it being like a, an oppressive dictator kicking the shit out of me, saying, God, you could do that a bit better, let's help, kind of thing. Does that make sense? So it's just to re, realign that a little bit. Um, look, I hope that's been of interest to you. Uh, I've certainly enjoyed it. In terms of, you know, I'd always encourage you all to look up other stuff if you're interested. There's volumes of stuff by Carl Jung and The Shadow I just barely touched over and his archetypes. Um, as a model for the personality and a view of uh, the world, the collective consciousness, as we say. Consciousness and unconsciousness, there's two two aspects to that. I really enjoyed it. Just to say, uh, I've been in touch with Connie's family. She's been having a tough time, you know. She's been very tired, very not able to talk much. So just to keep you updated there. Um, I got a text off her earlier on, like, I'm sleepy, Jimmy, I might give you a call later. I feel you kind of know her, so I'm bringing you, and I'm, I'm sure she, her and her family wouldn't mind at all, uh, just to keep you aware of what's going on. I know, you know, that that call's going to come, or at some point, um, unfortunately. 
Um, and just a shout out to a friend of ours, Huey's man passed away. And we're at the funeral of the, the cremation is tomorrow up in Newlands Cross, up Declan Dawkin. Huey's a long-term friend, Ballymun. Does great work out there. Great footballer. Lovely family. Shawnee and Fran and, and the gang. And the, the, I don't know the other brothers as well. I know Shawnee very well and uh, uh, Franner and Huey. But there's two other lads, I think. Cormac and uh, the other lad, he, who won't be listening to this, would be, what's his name? I just can't think of it. My apologies, other, other Greaves brother. But, uh, and, and the dad, Huey. So just to be thinking of them at this time. And uh, I love you and leave you. And hopefully we'll be talking to you next week. And I hope the sound is okay. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining me in the Twilight Conversations. If you'd like to get in contact with us regarding any aspect of the show, you can get in touch at thetwilightconversations at gmail.com. So the Twilight Conversations is an independent project. We're not getting any help from anybody. No major corporations or anything like that. So if you like the content, if you like what you're hearing, please continue to support us via our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash the Twilight Conversations.